When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. And our show today is awesome because we're going to answer your questions on whether or not to remove plates immediately after guests are finished eating. That's a very hotly debated topic. How to handle the cocktail party plate glass handshake juggle and the difference between asking and offering, as well as how far to extend yourself to those that don't reciprocate, plus a postscript segment on teaching etiquette to kids. All that and more coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning, and we're from the Emily Post Institute. I feel like I've been hit by a truck. This weekend was so amazingly fun and busy. I know, and long and good. And (laughs) now even this short week feels incredibly long. I know, I know. And I know our listeners will be hearing this the weekend after, but it still just is, I'm so like, wow. How was your 4th of July? Awesome. Awesome. Okay, great. An incredible fourth. And I, the Senning family has sort of a unique thing in that both my brother and Pooja both have birthdays on the 2nd of July. So it's a big celebration weekend. So starting on the 2nd and running right through the evening of the 4th, there are family barbecues and events and get-togethers and fireworks, and it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but boy, Tuesday morning feels like the end of a Don't you feel, I feel like I need party. a vacation from the long party that this weekend was. I love 4th of July weekend. The 3rd of July in Burlington is the night that Burlington does their amazing, amazing fireworks display. It really is nice. Down on the waterfront. And... There's They go on for forever. They have a huge grand finale. It's, it's incredible. But each year I take the boys that I babysit for to the fireworks. And I've, I was so proud of them last year because they did so well that no fighting, no, oh, I want fried dough. I want a, a bubble blowy thing. Like nothing like that. They just sit. We have our picnic. The, you know, sunsets. It gets really dark. And then the fireworks come out and they're amazing on the way back. And this year, the people I babysit for had house guests who had three daughters. So... I looked like Alice from the Brady Bunch with three boys and three girls in tow behind me as we went to our little picnic spot, and it was a joy. First of all, these girls were amazing girls, and so to have six kids that were all well-behaved, like... I fully admit I had one of those moments where you'd see like a couple parents dealing with a difficult child or child who's just having their meltdown. Their Mm -hmm. moment was come. Too much stimulus. It happens. It happens. And I felt just so proud. I had six all behaving, and I was like, okay, good, good, good. And I know that's not really fair to other parents to think that way, but I felt really successful. It's a feat to manage six kids all by yourself. I'm blown away. Thank you. It was really fun. And they what 
What was so gratifying was to be able to text the parents pictures of happy kids, no meltdowns. Everyone then later that night went to bed on time. They, you know, there was just, there was no fuss, no arguing. The kids felt like what they did was so special and fun. They weren't going to mess it up. And it was, it was just amazing to see six kids all together, no, no trouble whatsoever. And I, I loved every second of it. It's one of my favorite nights of the year. Well, kudos to those kids for having such good etiquette, particularly out in public without their parents around. Right. And by proxy, kudos to my cousin Lizzie for managing it so well. Um, well, we're going to return to this a little later in the show because we have a postscript today that deals particularly with teaching etiquette to kids that are at different stages of social development and also an etiquette salute that has to do with kids out in public. Well, shall we get to some questions? We shall. It looks all right, but what am I supposed to do? That's the question. On every episode of Awesome Etiquette, we take your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or give us a call at 802-866-0860. Today we begin with an age-old question. When dining out, should the waiter remove each plate as each person finishes or wait until all have finished eating? Anonymous. This question is almost as hotly debated as shoes on or shoes off. And it seems to be that about half of us think it's worse to feel rushed by a waiter removing plates than it is to sit with dirty plates in front of us at the table. And the other half feel that the dirty plate is the big offense and needs to be removed as soon as you're finished eating. Personally, I don't think too, too much about this, but I do. I recognize that a good server is paying attention, but I also think that I don't want to feel rushed. I don't want my guests to feel rushed. So I would rather the plates just sit there a little longer. And sometimes it convinces me to eat a little bit more of my mashed potato or something that I haven't quite finished on the plate. I'll confess, this is the moment I was okay. waiting for on this show. Really? I, Two years in? Well, no, no. since okay. I saw this question. Okay, okay, okay. And I was wondering what side you were going to come down on. Because yeah. this is one of those questions that has a couple of different right answers. Yes! And a little bit it has to do with your preference or your style. I was thinking about this problem a little bit differently, but came to a similar conclusion. Okay. Um, I was thinking about it from the perspective of the server or the host and the idea that you always want to keep the space in front of your guest occupied. Interesting. So that is that a thing? That's it, a thing? It is. Like the charger that waits at the table before you get there. Is there, there was a, a so certain that courtesy it's, around okay. having something in front of your guest at all times. Even if and, it's an empty plate? Yes. Okay. I'm learning th- I'm learning things. <laughs> and in my mind it would be easier to keep that space occupied if you're clearing as you're bringing the next course out. That it that keeps the, yeah. the activity at the table lively and and it keeps the space in front of your guest or your diner occupied. Interesting. Interesting. And if you're clearing earlier in the course, there might be an empty space in front of someone while you're waiting for the next course to be served. And to me, that's not problematic, but it's just it's the point of etiquette that I was noticing. It makes the table feel a little empty for a little while. And maybe that's not what a host would want. Interesting perspective, Daniel Senning. At the same time, I love that idea that your server is so attentive that they notice that moment when you indicate with your utensils that you're done eating and that you finished as you move them handles 
pedals together to the bottom right-hand quadrant of the plate. The and 420, yeah. I think oftentimes there's a, a preparation in more formal service to have that next thing ready. Maybe it's the charger continues to hold that place at the table. Maybe there's a little finger bowl to clean up between, between courses, whatever it is, that there is something that's prepared. But what you're prepared. talking about, though, is that is is having a switch in a timely manner. So you would mm-hmm. still have someone wait with a dirty plate in front of them until it was time for that switch to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm with you on that. And at the same time, I think that if you're removing it, you are just leaving a blank space for a while. I totally get that. I totally get that. For me, the main event, the main thing is not to make the other diners feel rushed. Because I do think we... <clears throat> in the post family eat very quickly some i believe of us some might. of us are, are the, the table gets very quiet all of a sudden while there's quite a lot of inhaling of food <laughs> um but i think i think yeah i would not want my guests a sitting there with empty empty areas in front of them and b for those who eat more slowly to feel rushed i can make the counter argument though oh i could just as easily say there's why a... are you gonna do that <laughs> because we, we haven't have said it yet reasoning <laughs> on this side all right go for it <laughs> uh there's a, a concept in etiquette that says you keep the table clean mm. that you do your best to present a neat and orderly and well put together table okay and once that plate is Finished? Finished. Maybe it's a bit of a mess. And the sooner that you're able to clear that when someone's really indicated that they're done with it, the more you're holding to that. Don't gross people out. Keep the table as neat and as clean as possible, even though I don't think a a plate of food that someone's done with is necessarily gross. Well, we want to hear what you think. So please, audience, weigh in on this great debate, whether or not you would like your plate cleared as soon as you're finished eating or whether you think it's polite to wait until everyone has finished. So, Anonymous, we don't have a solid answer for you, but we're hoping our audience will weigh in and help you decide, or we hope some of the reasoning we've given today helps you decide which side of the coin you fall on. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. 
That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. I love this question because we've all dealt with it. It's the cocktail party juggling act. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. My question is about proper quote-unquote table etiquette at cocktail parties. I've found myself at quite a few of these events lately, either for work or social reasons. Usually there's a bar and either a buffet of appetizers or staff that will go around with different hors d'oeuvres on a platter. These are normally standing events with maybe a couple of standing height tables. My problem is I'm never quite sure what to do with my hands to juggle food and drink. I'm usually holding a drink, then a waiter will walk up with napkins and a platter of finger foods. That's two extra items. What about approaching the appetizer buffet? Should I not be holding a drink so my hands are free to hold a plate and serve myself? Do I put the drink down on the appetizer table as I serve myself? I've also heard that you're supposed to keep your right hand free, which poses an even greater challenge. I would normally look for cues from other guests, but I have yet to see anyone that seems like they've mastered this little juggle. There has to be a best way to do this. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Manuel. Manuel, thank you for your question, and thank you for illustrating this particular moment for all of us. I think you've done it uh, really, really quite well. Everything that I was picturing from the way you initially asked your question, you described from the standing height tables to the mix of buffet food and people circulating with trays and napkins offering you little tastes. Picks, little picks, little uh, tiny picks. <laughs> he's imagining the little picks, the, the, the <laughs> little toothpicks, and maybe yeah. the, the, the even the piece of citrus or something that you would return that, that toothpick to. Oh, yeah, to. yeah, yeah, totally. One of the first things that I like to suggest is that, um, as is true in any situation, when you're trying to figure out what the appropriate behavior is, if you think about the role that you're playing, it can really help identify what's the appropriate behavior. And I would ask myself at the start of an event like this, what am I here to do? (laughs) Am I here to mix and mingle? Is that my primary objective or am I here to eat? And I would really keep my focus on what I'm there to do. And maybe it's a wedding reception. You haven't eaten all day and your primary focus is to get in there, get early in that buffet line, get a plate (laughs) of food with a few delicious delicious items on and get them in your belly because you're hungry. And I would say by all means, do that. Make that your focus and, and enjoy. On the other hand, if this is a business event, a mix and mingle event for business where you've got to justify a company expense report when you get back and talk to people about the connections you've made or what you've learned, I would set social goals for an event like that. I'd say I'm going to introduce myself to three people or I'm going to engage someone in a conversation where I'm able to ask some questions about what they're here at the conference to do, to find out a little bit more about someone else's business. And, And then I would say to myself, I'm going to get a drink in my left hand so that my right hand is free for shaking the way you indicated in your question. And I'm going to keep my focus on that for a little while. And if someone comes by with some food, maybe if I can just eat it with that toothpick with my right hand and then place the toothpick back on the platter, I'll do that because then it's not going to interfere with my ability to shake and have conversation. And... So it's like go for the fast finger food if you're going to go for it in this meet and mingle focus. Exactly. And it might help to take a napkin and hold it in your left hand under your drink. You can Mm -hmm. sort of hold a drink and a napkin together in your left hand. And then you've got a little napkin there. If you get a little something on your fingers, if you're feeding yourself with your right hand, you can wipe it off on that napkin without occupying another hand. 
I think you're in good shape. At that point, you're keeping the focus on what you intend to do. Then if there's a moment where you say to yourself, I'm going to eat before the food goes away or before we head to our next session, then you can make that the focus. You go, you spend five minutes, you get a little plate, you find a station, you set up at your station. (laughs) And if someone approaches you at that moment, you can even acknowledge this. Say, you know, I would love to shake your hand. I happen to have food in both hands right now. This is the five minutes I gave myself to grab some food. Thanks for coming and saying hi. I like the idea of finding, you know, one of those tables or something, even if it is one of those high top tables for when you're taking that moment to be focused on the food and you're saying this is this is my moment to kind of take a break and eat. Because that would allow you, if someone did come up to you, you have the table there to put everything on and you can immediately make the food secondary and make that person be the first focus and say, oh, thank you so much. I was just taking taking a minute to get some food before we moved on or before this was over. But I'm so glad you came by. And then you can just entertain that exchange so well without having to feel like, oh, I've got tons of stuff in my hands, you know. And I think that 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 makes sense to me as a good strategy to, A, also not let your your energy levels drop by being at an event where maybe you've only got one glass of wine and then no food in your belly. And I like the idea of giving yourself the permission and the time to accommodate both things. And you're in good shape because everyone else there is navigating the same process. Everybody else is making similar decisions. So people are going to be pretty forgiving, pretty understanding if you're not able to hit every etiquette mark that's part of a good self-introduction. At the same time, you're making the effort to participate as well as possible will also be noticed. Manuel, thank you for asking this question. It gives us an opportunity to mine a few details about this potentially tricky moment. I think our next question was rather cleverly titled by my cousin, Offer Instead of Ask. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. What is the best way to offer to help someone who needs it, but who might be embarrassed or ashamed to acknowledge that they need it? I'm a librarian in Washington, D.C. I often have patrons who approach my desk with a question such as, where is this specific book or in which section are the books on this specific topic? After a catalog search, I write down a call number or a range of call numbers, and then comes the difficult moment. Many patrons are embarrassed or ashamed to admit that they do not know how the mechanics of a library work, as they feel like they should already be able to do this work on their own. This phenomenon actually has a name, library anxiety, and leads to these patrons either not asking for help or being unwilling to accept help when it's offered. So when I ask a question like, do you need me to help you find this book, or do you understand how call numbers work, I'm often met with awkward pauses, blushes, or outright defiance. All I want is to be helpful and welcoming. Librarianship is a helping profession after all. But I am struggling with how to phrase this in a way that seems neither judgmental nor patronizing. What is the best way to offer this sort of help without embarrassing my patrons? Amanda. And this is why we titled the question Offer Instead of Ask, because I think that's the the difference you're experiencing, Amanda, is that you want to offer help, but instead you're asking questions and They are, I I don't want you to feel badly, but they are questions that I think could come off as patronizing, especially if there's any hint, you know, these people don't know you, they don't know how friendly and welcoming you are, and how much your intention is there. And if that's not coming through completely in your voice, they are going to feel embarrassed. So I would think that it it truly is amazing how simple change in, in your language can have the potential to really get across what you want. Instead of asking them if they understand how call numbers work, which I I hear it even as I, I say it right now, it could easily put someone on the fence or make them embarrassed because then, 
It's like, oh, I don't understand how a call number works, but I did have a library in my school growing up. Like, you know, you feel like this is something you should know. Try saying, I'd be happy to help you find the book if you'd like, or I'm happy to show you how the call numbers work, or, you know, those call numbers are tricky. I I can absolutely help you find the right section. Those ways, they offer someone a little bit of, okay, a a bit of relief. It offers them that moment to think, okay, this is uh, clearly she's used to dealing with this. Other people deal with this. Okay, great. And I think it's easier to accept that than an answer of, no, I don't know how call numbers work. Could you please show me? It's much harder for them to admit they don't know something and then have to ask for your help as opposed to you just offering and making it seem so easy and simple and casual and nice. That really reminds me of something that we mentioned when we talk about approaching other difficult conversations, which is that if you make some effort to build a little rapport with mm-hmm. someone, it can often go a long way towards making that that offer for help or assistance easier to accept. And even just some language like, I needed someone to help me find the 300s when I first worked here, <laughs> might, might start to help to build that rapport a little bit to acknowledge that everybody needs a little help sometimes and that you do this for everyone, that even you ask for help when you need it. Another tactic that might be helpful, and it's never going to replace your gracious good spirit <laughs> in the moment, right. is to have some resources ready. And that might just be a card that's easier for someone to take in the moment than to... to oh, that has like instructions on it for how to find a call number or... Yeah, exactly. Just some basics on how the library functions. And it could be given to everybody when they first visit or first apply for a library card. But it could also be right at hand for anybody that's having difficulty finding anything in the library that they need a guide to the library resources. And that might go over really well for the person that's just so shy they don't want to take you up on the on the personal offer. Because I think a lot of people do look at a situation like this and they think, I don't want them to have to get up and walk me over to this section and go up to the fourth floor and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's Dan. That's Dan. He would rather just have a little card or something like that so that he could go deal with it on his own. So those are two two solutions, but I think that either way, clearly your heart's in the right place. And I think with just a quick adjustment of language, you're going to feel like people are really responding well to this. Amanda, thank you so much for your question. I love the difference between asking and offering, and it was great to get a chance to talk about that for a minute. We wish you the best. But there's more. What's that? More questions coming up, but first a word from our sponsor. Here, let's try another trick. Our next question is titled, So Many Handshakes. There really can be so many handshakes. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. When interviewing in front of a committee, am I expected to shake hands with everyone in the group upon arrival and then again at the end? My gut tells me that, yes, that is the proper thing to do. But it can feel a little awkward, especially when you have to move around a large conference table or when the members don't rise from their seats to signal that they are accepting of or expecting a handshake. Would love to hear your thoughts. Jess. Jess, thanks for the question. This can be a tricky moment. You're walking into a high-stakes situation and you're meeting people for the first time and every instinct in your body is to put your best foot forward. And clearly, a handshake is part of a well-mannered, well-intentioned, confident self-introduction. So you might be thinking to yourself as that door opens, I'm going to shake hands with all of these people. And then, sure enough, no one stands up 
to greet you or one person stands up to greet you, you you're really going to take your cues from that person who greets you or the people who are in the room waiting for you. You've got to know the rules to know when and how to break them. And you might be thinking to yourself, the rule is I shake everyone's hand the first time I meet them. There's also a rule that says you follow your host's lead, that practicality is the heart of good etiquette. And if there's five or six or ten people in a room and they're all behind a table and it's going to be awkward or onerous to shake everyone's hand, you might very well just shake the hand of that first person. They might indicate that you take a seat, at which point you can take a seat and say, you know, my name is, it's such a pleasure to meet all of you. You still greet people. You still make an effort to make eye contact, to look people in the eye, to acknowledge the presence of everyone in the room. You still smile. (laughs) But the handshake itself might not be a part of a personal introduction with every single person in a room when you're you're meeting with a committee the way you describe here. The other thing I would add is You've shaken that first person's hand and they indicate that you sit down so you know that you're in the clear to take the seat. I would then make sure that before I actually sat down, I made eye contact with all of the like you almost use your eye contact and a smile and a nod. Um, And as you're saying things like it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you all for taking the time today. Say all of that before you take your seat, just because we talk about that sign of respect being that often introductions are done when standing. And that's one way that even though you're not actually doing the handshake introduction, Mm -hmm. you're still acknowledging these people. You're making that first impression. You're getting that eye contact, and then you're sitting down to engage. I really like that addition. It gives you a chance to project some confidence. Hopefully, by the time the interview's done, everybody is so eager to hire you that they're jumping out of their seats to shake your hand and make the best impression they can make before you get out of the room and make your escape. But if they don't do that, you can follow their cues as well. You can thank everyone for their time, tell them how much you appreciated their making the effort to meet with you in person. Again, this is one of those times when you're really going to watch your host. You're going to follow their lead because they're really the ones who are directing this situation. I'm sure with the attention and the forethought that you're giving this, you are going to make a great impression as you navigate this process, and we want to wish you the best of luck. I, I like our next title. How far do you go? Dear Lizzie and Dan, this year I've had the opportunity to lead a student group to an academic competition. It was a great experience, and we powered through what felt like at times insurmountable challenges. Leading up to this event, there was one person in particular who consistently made decisions on their own, be it hotel and flight accommodations or other plans while we were in town. I dealt with it by being understanding of what I could presume to be their financial situation. I always tried to find the most reasonable bookings, and as a group, we could usually use that to our advantage, so it seems unclear why they decided to act this way. This person was always secretive throughout the trip, and while I did my best to accommodate their individual choices, it was very stressful to me, as I had to constantly readjust flight and hotel bookings for everyone else. The same person came to me recently for a reference letter, practically demanding one, and while I had a difficult time doing so, I said no. The tone in the letter was almost as if I owed them one, which I certainly know is not the case. Do you have any advice on how I could deal with these kinds of situations going forward? Best regards. Anonymous. Um, this is one that it sounds like um, the the reference letter. I'm guessing that the reference was then requested via a letter or via an email or That's something. That's what I'm okay, gathering. Good. Just checking. Mm. What I love about this question is that it gets to the heart of an issue I think a lot of us deal with on a sometimes daily basis, which is you have people in your life 
and you do things for them or you making accommodations or you're being considerate and respectful and honest and they aren't really playing the same game at the same level that you are. And the question then becomes, how how far do you extend yourself for this person? Mm -hmm. And this is something I struggle with because it goes between what would I do just to feel good about being me? And how do I then feel about this relationship in terms of wanting to do something? And I'm I'm proud of this person who feels like they've gone the extra mile for this other person. Just said, you know, you're not someone I can give a good reference for. And I'm sure she didn't he or she didn't say that to the to, to the person who is requesting the reference. But but it's okay to have that level of honesty in your own mind. In your own mind and say, you know, I, I'm probably not the best person to ask for a reference or, you know, I don't feel comfortable writing references right now. But, um, you know, you might want to ask a professor you've worked very closely with or something like that. I'm guessing this is, since it was an academic competition mm-hmm. that this is an academic situation. But... I think you're starting to dance around some good sample language. I think that that part of it has to do with tone. Um, But obviously, if you're replying and writing, the tone has to be communicated through your word choice. And I think you're starting to to find that word choice where you acknowledge that you're not the best person to write this letter or that you don't feel entirely comfortable writing this letter. And you encourage them to look for someone who they've worked more closely with or someone that can really speak to the attributes and qualities that are going to be most helpful for them. Absolutely. And in terms of someone, let's go back up to the kind of the start of the question, which is just this whole trip that they were on, um, not knowing how tight this group is or how much of a group thing this was supposed to be, um, especially as you get into your older years, and we're not talking about managing high school students where there's a legal chaperone that needs to be there, that sort of a situation. You know, when you do get into college and then beyond and you're organizing groups of people um I would say for things that aren't necessarily just social, you're not going on vacation with your best friends in this scenario. Okay, this is a group of people that have a common interest. They're a competition, so I'm guessing this was a team. This person might have really been looking at this trip to the city as an opportunity to see people that they would never get to see otherwise. It might not have been financial, I'm trying to get at, which mm-hmm. is what the assumption was. And I'm more surprised that what didn't happen was you just say, OK, you take care of yourself and make sure you meet us at this place at this time and just let them go do what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Here are the practice times that we need before the competition show up here and here. Thank you. But if they're deviating, don't let that become your problem where you have to switch flights and change hotels to try and do everything they're doing. Let them go just be on their own if the nature of the group allows for that to really be the circumstance. And if it doesn't, if and that's that's really produced a problem for you, you are so in the clear to decide not to make a recommendation for someone. In fact, it's it's advisable not to recommend people that you don't feel comfortable recommending. It's your reputation that's really on the line. It's why recommendations are so valuable. It's why they matter. It's why people ask for them. And it's important that you protect the integrity of your word because that's really important to you and your reputation. And while it's not related to the letter of recommendation, as a group coordinator, you can always let someone know that you really need closer communication and more cooperation from them in order to plan the trip so that everyone can participate well. 
Before we leave this question, I'd also like to share a parting thought about recommendations broadly and writing recommendations, and that's that not all recommendations are the same, that it's possible to communicate a lot with a recommendation. Some are glowing. I read some recommendations where I say to myself, I know this person really loved this person. There is language that indicates how special, how hardworking, how diligent, how intelligent, how dependable, how responsible, how creative. There, I, I can think of ways to really make a recommendation sing. And there are other recommendations that indicate competency and indicate uh, an ability to do a job, but not necessarily a proficiency. And people that get recommendations are used to interpreting and deciphering what someone means when they're writing a recommendation. So I also just want to offer that thought as well, because it can be helpful when trying to decide how to handle these kinds of requests. Anonymous, we loved your question, and we just want to say that it's really impressive on both the group coordination and travel front and the recommendation front to see someone taking it so seriously in a very good way. It's only common courtesy, Chuck. Thank you for your questions. You can send updates and comments or feedback to 802-866-0860. Or you can reach us by email at awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or on Twitter using the hashtag Awesome Etiquette. Mm-hmm. And because we get so many thoughtful responses from you, our audience, we want to take a few minutes to highlight some feedback we've gotten recently. Our producer Hans joins us with some items from our mailbag. Well, hi, Lizzie and Dan. So our first piece of feedback that we have is back from episode 89, and this was in reference to a question of when people don't remember you at parties. So say that you're at a party, and you see someone across the room, you say, oh, I know them, and you go over and you say, hi, and they say, uh, you know, that's an awkward situation. So Heather wrote into us with a strategy for that situation that she's been getting people to remember her, which is a preemptive strategy. So she says, I've taken to actually reintroducing myself in the greeting, saying, you may not remember me, but I used to work at such and such, and I believe you were there for this or that project. So this puts them at ease in that they know I know them, and they don't feel bad if they don't remember me, even if they sometimes recognize my face by reminding them how they know me It starts a conversation at an easy place. I love that suggestion. That's a really good one. But it totally reminds me of this episode of 30 Rock where Jack's girlfriend constantly keeps reintroducing herself to to Liz. Hi, I'm Phoebe. We've met before. Remember Hollow Bones? <laughs> and it's just the funniest thing because she's like, yeah, I know. I remember you. We've met. I know who you are. Obviously, that's not what, what our listener Heather is dealing with. But I think it is really smart to reintroduce yourself and just give that permission of totally understand if you don't remember me. But So up next, Lizzie, you had something that you wanted to share, right? Yes. So our next pieces of feedback, we have two from episode 93, which was you are what you eat. And that was an interesting, it's interesting people, the dietary restriction thing is a, it's a real thing. It's a real problem people are dealing with. I'm starting to deal with it in my life. It's, it's new. It's different. It's interesting. 
Um, but we had Nicole writing in and she said, hi, Lizzie and Dan. I listened to episode 93 this morning and your dietary discussions really resonated with me. I'm glad that the bride to be was able to resolve her rehearsal luncheon issue. Two and a half years ago, I decided to give up eating wheat. And while I am happy with the decision, it can be a challenge sometimes. So I'm wheat free and not gluten free. There is a difference. I eat barley and rye, but it's just easier to say gluten free, especially in a restaurant setting, as oftentimes they would hear meat free. A co-worker once heard me telling this story and she thought I said weed-free, which is even more amusing if you knew me. It's most confusing on the rare occasion that I order a beer with my meal after telling them I'm gluten-free, as most beers are made with barley, not wheat, so I can actually drink them. It's always amazing to me that people have no idea what being wheat-free means. I'm often asked, can I eat rice and potatoes? I use it as a chance to educate my friends and family. I write a food blog for fun, so many people close to me realize that I don't eat wheat and have become a resource, which I love for people who are trying to understand what it means to be gluten-free, especially those who have recently received a celiac diagnosis, as then their giving up gluten isn't by choice. Keep up the great work, and thanks for keeping me entertained at the gym. Best, Nicole. People do. The dietary restriction thing, it's a real thing. Hans, you said we had another one, too? We did have another one. This one was from Levi over on Facebook. And uh, he talked about not just the dietary restrictions, but he started his his comment with, I've experienced subtle pressure myself when not partaking of donuts and other things that are supposed to be appealing to me at work. But I also think things are improving, albeit slowly. And I think that that whole part about what is supposed to be appealing to somebody is a really interesting way to frame the conversation about what people should or should not be eating and what people think other people should or should not be eating. No, it's it's very true. In my recent sort of, as, as I keep saying, I have not fully given up meat, but I just, I really don't eat it regularly at all anymore. And it's funny how when I'm explaining that to people, they feel like they need to find uh, pro-veggie comments or they feel like they all of a sudden they get very quiet. And I'm like, no, no, no. You can talk to me about how great that steak is, really. Like, I'm not going to tell you it's bad. Like, um, And no, you don't have to order vegetarian fare in front of me. Like, that's not the, the thing here. I'm not necessarily even asking for your comment or perspective on my dietary choices. This is about navigating the the situation in front of us. Exactly. Exactly, Dan. That's so well put. It's about navigating the situation in front of you. And Levi had another situation that he has to navigate pretty regularly that he mentioned also in his post saying, there's another aspect of this conversation I thought I'd mention as well that has to do with your child's eating habits. Unfortunately, our 10-year-old daughter still has not outgrown her very narrow set of things she likes to eat, which are often quite different from the quote-unquote normal kid. And so we often need to make sure she will have choices where she goes or she will be miserable. Asking on her behalf, I sometimes feel like I'm being judged for her pickiness. And so being judged for her diet, for her, and parenting, for me, is a bit of a double whammy. Ouch. Oh, I could I could totally, totally understand why that would feel like a double whammy. That is a lot of judgment flowing in your direction. And it certainly doesn't feel good to be the, the receiver of that kind of negative judgment. No. And I actually I babysat for a family once years ago where the, the little boy was four years old and went through a period where he wouldn't eat anything. And the parents were literally like, if he craves anything, go get it for him. Hop in your you have permission to go to McDonald's, go to wherever. Go to any place that could put calories into his body. We don't care what he eats just as long as something goes in at this point. 
Emily wrote a book called Children or People in 1959, and I think it's something that it's not so much a judgment on parenting. It's parents are trying to work with their kids for the best possible outcome. And the more that other people can understand that when the parent says, right now we're only eating chicken fingers and carrot sticks, <laughs> the the better off both parties are going to be. Just let the parents find something for their kid that's going to work and don't put judgment on them for it. Questions around diet are so personal to people, and clearly dietary restrictions fall into that territory where there's potential to give offense and people have strong opinions. So I really appreciate the feedback. It helps all of us navigate these questions, these tricky questions, with more care. So this is a great segue, actually, into our Postscript segment for today. Dan was just down in Orlando teaching a children's etiquette workshop. And what was really cool about this is typically we really try to stick within developmental stages when we teach a, a workshop just because it's you do teach differently to different age groups. It's what our whole Train the Tra- Children's Train the Trainer program is built on. However, what happened with this particular group is we wound up with ages ranging from 4 to 17. And the remarkable thing was that all of these kids understood some really solid pieces of etiquette. And what I hear so often when people call up the Institute to ask for children's etiquette seminars is that parents feel like, I just can't get through to my kids. How do I know if I'm getting through to my kids? And what Dan experiences, you're getting through to your kids. Trust me. And there are some reasons why. And Dan, do you want to talk about what it is that we teach in our Train the Trainer program that makes us know why these parents really are being effective with their kids? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, this organization, they were remarkable. The Entrepreneurs Organization, um, organized in large part by Scott and Kelly Walton. And I I mentioned them in particular because I want to give a shout out to Kelly Walton, who came to Emily Post to do a children's etiquette train the trainer course with us and is really familiar with our material and the way that we like to teach and present etiquette. And she and her husband brought us down to be part of a large family event. So we did end up with kids from all of these different age ranges in the same room. And I started off with a little word association game where I put the word etiquette up on the board and I asked kids what it means to them. And I was so impressed, so pleasantly surprised by the fact that this really diverse group of children came up with some of the greatest hits of etiquette. Right off the bat, they gave me things like, you need to chew with your mouth closed. You can't talk with your mouth full. It's so important to use magic words like, please, thank you. I'm sorry. And you're welcome. And they even identified that it was important to write thank you notes. These were some really well-mannered children. And it was such a, a shift for me because I just finished talking to their parents. And a lot of their parents had come up after the session and talked to me about how important it was to them that their children attended the etiquette session. That it was one of the sessions, one of the workshops that they'd identified as being really important to them as parents because they weren't sure that they were getting through to their kids. That they weren't convinced that the messages that they thought were so important that they were really striving and struggling to teach in the home were, were landing and were being received well. And sure enough, 10 minutes later when I'm asking their children about manners and etiquette, their children are, are telling me everything that their parents want me to be telling them. So in some ways, this is a, a good news story that I really have a lot, of, a lot of faith and a lot of confidence both in kids and parents today. But it got me thinking about the ways we teach etiquette. And I wanted to share just one concept that comes from our children's etiquette training, which is that 
We really approach manners as tools. They're, they're social skills or tools that children or kids can use for a lifetime. And they really are uh, a gift. It's one of the, the real gifts that you can give your kids that are going to equip them for anything that they encounter in life. And as with any tool, there's a process for learning how to use a tool and lose, use a tool well. And we like to break down that process into four parts. And the first requirement for using any tool well is basic ability. So Lizzie mentioned uh, identifying the, the social stage, the developmental stage that your child is at. It's important to know they've got the basic ability to use the tool that you're trying to teach them. So maybe that tool is a fork, and clearly a two-year-old doesn't have the, the basic ability to manage that tool with dexterity. The same thing might be true with a self-introduction. That two-year-old doesn't have the basic skills to manage that self-introduction that includes a handshake, although they might very well be able to wave and say, hi, mommy, or hi, grandma. So there, there's a process of identifying if they have the basic ability to execute the manner. Then comes the good teaching. You have to teach them how to do the thing itself, how to hold that fork, how to wave. You have to model the behavior. You have to do it for them, do it with them. Then comes the practice, where they have to take ownership of that skill themselves. They have to demonstrate that ability. If they've been taught well, the practice shows that they know how to do it. And then comes the fourth step, which feels like practice, but it's not. It's different. And that's repetition. And repetition is the building of the habit. So the practice has to do with acquiring the basic skill, demonstrating proficiency with the basic skill. Then comes the repetition. And the repetition is where that basic skill becomes a habit, becomes something that anyone, any child, any young adult is not just capable of doing, but is likely to do in a given situation where it's appropriate. So first comes with identifying basic ability. Then comes the good teaching, then comes the practice, and then comes the repetition. And oftentimes, parents have done the work. They've identified the basic ability. They've done the good teaching. They've done the practice. It's that repetition that can sometimes be the, the hardest part of the process. And that's where you just need to remind yourself that, no, this is working and that I'm building this skill. And I'm not just building it as a practical skill, but I'm building it as a habit that's going to serve my child for a lifetime. I feel like when it comes to that repetition, it's the part that frustrates the parent the most because they they don't want to feel like that broken record. But that broken record is exactly what your child needs. And and saying it a million different ways with a million different smiles on your face is going to be the key to getting them to positively respond to that. And let me tell you something. As adults, when you think back, what's the thing you can always remember hearing your mother say? For me, it's, Lizzie, I'm on the phone. Now is not the time. And that's the reminder to me that you can't interrupt somebody when they're talking on the phone. <laughs> you know, and for other people, it's the put your napkin in your lap. And for other people, too, with your mouth closed. It's whatever it is. But everyone has that one thing that they remember mama saying. And it can be particularly hard because it can feel like you're going backwards. There's a a, yeah. a a period in the social development, the teen years, where it's the job of a, a growing human, of a young adult to question and challenge some of the things they've been taught when they're younger. And those might be the things that really feel like they matter to a parent. And they might um, run contrary to the habit building that so much time has been invested in. It's okay. <laughs> this is where my mother would remind parents out there to take a deep breath that that, that that child is doing their job challenging in that moment. So don't lose heart just because it feels like as they're getting closer to adulthood, they're 
they're pulling away. They're pulling yeah. away or they're they're digressing in <laughs> terms of how they utilize these skills. There's a very good chance that they're going to come back around at the moment when it matters most. And keep after it. The other thing to remember, as I experienced, as we talked about at the very start of the show, is that your kids also, they do remember the things that you say when they're out in public or when they're with other people. You know, I love getting to tell those the parents of those six kids, your children were amazing. I can't believe how easy they made this evening for me. And, you know, I see the I see the kids at home when they're they're not always in their best moments. And to know and trust and believe that your kids, this is sinking in. They will use it. They know how to use it. They might not do it every time in front of you, but boy, do they pull it out when it's needed. So take heart, keep it up, and three cheers for that next generation that we know is going to carry the mantle with grace and poise. But why? Why does it matter? For several reasons. Look, maybe I can show you. Every week, we like to end with a listener salute to good etiquette. And today, we also have a etiquette expert salute to good etiquette. Dan, why don't you kick us off? So today's salute comes from me. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I jumped the queue. I, I, I told our producer, Hans, and my cousin, Lizzie, that I wanted to offer a salute. So I love I'm... that you didn't just say, this salute is for me. It comes from me. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, it's an anonymous salute. It's to a stranger. It's to someone who is unnamed because we don't know their name. But this stranger really came to the aid, to the rescue of my brother and his wife. Oh, what happened? They were traveling. Mm-hmm. They were on their way to my sister-in-law's sister's wedding. Okay. <laughs> and they were bringing their two girls with them. Mm-hmm. And their oldest daughter is just a little over two years old. I'm not going to say she's in her terrible twos because I don't like to label the twos as terrible. Mm-hmm. But she had a classic tantrum on the airplane. And she was not ready to calm down. She was wailing. And... Her parents were at a loss. They didn't know what to do. It was one of those horrible situations. And there was a man (laughs) sitting across the aisle who was somehow able to engage their daughter. And I I think it was even with an iPad, (laughs) which is one of her favorite, favorite things. And he was able to soothe her and to calm her down. And... My mother said he must have been a father. (laughs) Someone who knew. (laughs) It's possible. But I often travel for work and I oftentimes find myself in planes watching parents, watching parents with young children. And I will confess I have had ungenerous thoughts in my mind. Oh, we all have. Yeah. I I have found myself sitting in the proximity of a small child thinking to myself, oh, this could really go badly. And then it does. And then I find myself judging and... Rather than go to that place, somebody took a moment to try to help, and they really came to the rescue of some people really close to me. And I appreciated it so much because I know how difficult those tantrums can be. And it's reminded me since on some flights to have patience with people who are dealing with situations that I'm sure they would rather not be dealing with themselves. So. This is a great, big, huge etiquette salute to that anonymous stranger who went out of his way to help my brother with his tantrum-throwing two-year-old on an airplane recently. And to all those other Good Samaritans out there who do a good turn for someone else who's trying to travel with a child. Well, now, wasn't that better? Look at the effect of a little politeness. 
Thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us your questions, comments, and salutes. Please send your salutes. We need more salutes. There has to be good etiquette happening out there. But please send anything you'd like in via phone. You can reach us at 802-866-0860. Email weareawesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. On Twitter, I'm at Lizzie A. Post. And I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Help us out. Subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. Our theme music was composed and performed by Bob Wagner, and our show is produced by Hans Buto. Hans Buto.